Hello and welcome to Farmerama. After last month's words from farmers around the world, we are now back on British soil. We have stories from Perthshire to Devon and we stop off in a few places in between. A few of us headed to the first Scottish farm hack to share and learn from many other farmers, smallholders and food makers. We'll be sharing the highlights later in the show. We also catch up with Patrick Holden from the Sustainable Food Trust about fair trade, transparent pricing and how he makes the most of the byproducts from his dairy farm. We have a great little trick for soil testing on the cheap, a great British test, the TBI. Any guesses what it stands for? And then we are in Shropshire to find out about some of the ups and downs of woofing. You may remember Patrick Holden as a guest on this show. He's the man behind the Sustainable Food Trust. He's also a farmer and has been making cheese for 43 years on one of the first certified organic dairy farms in Wales. He recently chatted to us about the importance of farmers receiving a fair price that reflects the cost of production. But first, he shares a story of how a conversation with a neighbour led to a new outlet for one of his waste products. Well, I had a conversation at the Slow Food Terra Madre youth event in Milan with a man who actually lives down the road from me, but who I'd never met mm. uh, last year. Uh, he's called Ifted or Ilted, as they tend to, people who are not world speakers tend to call him, and his wife, Liesel. They sh- set up a charcuterie business uh, near Carmarthen, and uh, he happened to know that I was a dairy farmer, and uh, obviously, because of that, we, produ- we were producing a lot of calves. And he said, what do you do with your male calves? And I had to be honest, and I told him, I said, well, uh, sometimes we literally uh, slaughter them at birth because there's no market for them. Uh, otherwise, we just sold them off to whoever would take them at a reasonable price. And he said to me, um, well, I'd like to buy your calves. And I said to him, how much will you pay? Because I knew straight away that if, um, if he was paying a price below the cost of keeping them, then there would be no advantage to us and we were already losing money on our farm. Mm -hmm. So he said, and this is what really shocked me, he said, I will pay you the cost of production plus a margin. And I said, okay then. And that was uh, 15 months or so ago. Now, as we speak, we are selling uh, one veal calf, whey-fed, and of course silage-fed, rosé veal really, Mm per month uh, to Eltid, and he is processing them into a whole range of meats, including steaks, which are absolutely delicious, but also wonderful charcuterie products, including a veal pork sausage type product, which is really delicious. The story of a dairy farm is the story of male calves. Unless you're using sexed semen, mm-hmm. 50% of your dairy uh, calves will be male. And really part of the story of the farm ought to be to find a market for those calves uh, where the meat will be appreciated. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the very special thing. And this meat is already finding its way into some fancy places like Mm -hmm. Fortnum and Mason's. And that sounds very high end. But actually, I think in the long run, the meat ought to be sold in Wales uh, by appreciative citizens who want to be connected with a good story of sustainable dairy farming Mm -hmm. and I believe that this idea of transparent food pricing 
is a big idea and transferable. I can't see why that could not be the basis of all future food pricing. So if when you buy a product, whatever it is, you knew how much of the percentage of the price that you were paying for the product went to the farmer, that's the essence of transparency. Mm -hmm. And it would really transform the marketplace and re-empower both farmers and citizens uh, to establish a better and more equitable relationship with their food. I had a conversation, some might call it an argument, <laughs> with the fair trade movement back in the 90s when I was uh, at the Soil Association. And some of our licensees, including Green and Black's Chocolate and other licensees, came to us and said, we're being certified by you, the Soil Association, and also the Fair Trade Foundation. And it strikes us that there's no sense in that. Surely fair trade, in other words, the farmer getting a fair price, ought to be part of the organic story. So why don't you launch a fair trade and organic label combined in one with one inspection? So we went to the Fair Trade Foundation and we said, what about this? It's a good idea. And they said to us, no, fair trade is about tea, coffee and bananas uh, from peasant farmers in developing countries. It's not about feather-bedded European countries country farmers because they are cap subsidized and actually very well off thank you very much so I said I don't think first of all I don't think that's right and secondly surely to coin a phrase fair trade should start at home but uh, the fair trade foundation at that time were adamant that this wasn't something we wanted to pursue so we were left at the soil association we're in a dilemma um, and really there was a split of opinion. I thought we should have taken the Fair Trade Foundation on and said, no, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. But other people whose counsel prevailed in the end said, no, it would be political and it would be a bit messy and best not to do that. Mm -hmm. So there we are, 20 years later, maybe fair trade, uh, the principle of fair trade is, is coming round again um, and it's people, young um, entrepreneurs like uh, Echted who are, are um, developing that. Thanks, Patrick. He covered two things that are constant questions on Farmerama. What does a future where farmers get paid a fair price for their produce look like? What waste products from your farm are useful products for someone else? I think in particular, that first question is something that, well, we talked a little bit further with Patrick about it, and mm. it really is an unknown. It's like, what does a world where farmers actually get paid, you know, the cost of production and then some for what they're making what how how does that happen it's it's like it's such a sort of huge unraveling that needs to happen first it's it's kind of very hard to sort of see where you start that process and how you you know how you can make like little steps towards it you know because there needs to be such a huge sea change mm. for us to get to you know a better place but i think that is the key isn't it is like we need to start thinking about what are those little steps. Yeah. And, um, um, and then the other thing we talked about was that being true at the other end of the system. So, you know, consumers really understanding what the farmer was taking away from what they were paying for food mm. and how much of an impact that would have on the whole system as well. We featured a few things about soil science over the last few months. And we understand the importance of knowing what is going on in the hidden depths beneath our feet. Today we're going to share an idea which is most definitely low-tech and also making use of a waste product. This time a tea bag 
Here's Abby with Tom, who she met whilst part of the Field of Wheat project. Uh, I'm Tom Powell. I work mostly on the global environmental implications of food systems and land use. As part of Field of Wheat, I ended up doing some much more um, local and specific research on the variability of soil across an individual field and its implications for the growth of crop plants. Being part of an artistic project, we had absolutely no budget so I've had to find very cheap methods of doing soil science, which has been a really interesting process in itself. One technique I particularly like that I found um, in the methods section of a paper in Nature, where it was referred to mysteriously as the TBI, <laughs> and I had to um, dig into the references to find out what that actually meant. Um, the TBI is a method for uh, measuring rates of soil of decomposition of organic matter in the soil. Uh, it stands for the tea bag index. <laughs> um, it's developed by a Dutch research group who use Lipton's tea bags, uh, and they bury one rooibos tea bag and one green tea bag next to one another, leave them for 90 days, and when you dig them up, the differential rate with which they've decomposed tells you about not only how quickly organic matter decomposes in the soil, but also how much of that, um, the carbon within that uh, organic matter ends up uh, being respired back to the atmosphere and how, how much ends up being stored in organic matter in the soil. So it's actually an incredibly neat tool for doing quite complex science, but very, very cheap and very available. And they're trying to use it as a citizen science project to calibrate um, global earth system models and climate models um, to get worldwide soil respiration data. So they have a very good website, which you can find by Googling tea bag index. Where they have all of the methodology and the equation that you have to put your tea bag weights into to get results and you can share your results with them. Amazing. And if you want to learn more about Field of Wheat, we first featured them in episode six. There will be definitely more from that project again soon. Nigel, tell us what Whooping is. Well, the acronym stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. Mm. And, oh, actually, no, no. I hang on, it hang on. World... It's wild, wild, Worldwide Opportunities on, on organic, organic Farms. Okay, yeah. But it used to be, I think it started out as Weekend Workers and then it was Willing Workers. Okay. But they basically took the work out of it because it's like, it's a, a voluntary I see, thing. okay. So essentially, they, they've che- it's evolved over 45 years. So they actually had their um, 45th birthday recently. I think it was held in Cumbria, Amazing. which is pretty mm-hmm. impressive for an organisation. That... And, and, it, and it really, you know, it started from very humble beginnings in a, in a, in a small farm, uh, at Tablehurst Farm in Forest Row. So actually not very far from our farm in East Sussex. And from very small seed, it's grown into this huge, like global um, organisation it's used by thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and it's a great way of um, farmers hosting people interested in learning about food and doing some work on a farm. And So Carolyn from the Food Assembly spoke to Barbara from Babinswood Farm in Shropshire for us to hear all about their woofing experiences. Yeah, I think the woofing idea is a really good idea. We've been a, a woof host for four years now 
Um, we get people from all over the world. Um, they all seem to enjoy coming to our place. Some have some experience of growing or working with animals and others have absolutely no experience. Um, a lot of people come because they want to learn the language, um, which is fine. But what our our aim with having woofers is them is to educate in um, environmental issues. We try to show them films as well in the evenings to encourage them to look at things, to teach them about um, the importance of organic farming, not using pesticides and chemicals, and also not to waste as well. Um, and we find actually most people have a really good time. They work very hard. Overall, it's been a really good experience. The slight downside of it is if you only get people for a very short time, by the time they've got into the routine, mm. then um, it's, you know, they're, they're off again. But if they can come for at least a month, then that's not an issue. They, they soon get into things. The other issue is it does mean that you're, you have people in your house all the time, which works well for me, but other members of the family aren't always that happy about mm. it. Um, so uh, that's something we, we need to work around. The other thing I was going to say was one of the things when I was first introduced to the idea some maybe six, seven years ago, I said I haven't got time to look after people. But as it turns out, we have fairly big groups of woofers and basically they run a rotor and they cook for themselves or, and cook for me as well. So that's all part of the experience. And I think that encourages them. We, have a, we make a rotor up and that actually encourages them to work with each other and not necessarily with a person they've come with. So they all meet people from other countries and other cultures as well. But all the time we're reinforcing the, the organic, the environmental, the sustainability of it. And as far, I would much prefer to use human power than oil. So for me, it's a brilliant scheme. Mm. Yeah. Personally, I think the garden does rely on the voluntary help because there's not a lot of money in growing vegetables. But if somebody can have an experience and in return give their labour, then it's a win-win situation. Um, I don't feel that we exploit them because they seem to enjoy what they do. Um, that, that is an accusation that's sometimes levelled, but it's not been the feedback. We get really good feedback from them. They all fill in a book when they leave and write nice messages to us. And, and quite a few have come back as well, um, have come back for a second or even third time. If you want to find out more about woofing, there's lots of info online. It really is a great way to explore the countryside and fields we're often so far removed from, as well as learning about farming and growing in different lands. I've always wanted to do some woofing abroad, and I have kind of worked on different organic farms at different times, and you, it's a whole new experience and a way of meeting people from that culture. To me, it's almost identical to inter internships. So I would say that almost every company in the world, you know, they seem to have internships and there you're only in the UK legally having to get paid 150 pounds a week. Yeah. Whereas with a woofing, you're getting room and board and food. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a, it's a pretty good deal. I, I think, think it's a great deal. And yeah. I don't think people should feel bad about it. Although I do agree that we should have agriculture where we can pay for the labor just through the produce itself. That I would mean, be I, the ideal. It's kind of coming back to our point earlier where we were talking about you know, farmers receiving a fair price mm -hmm. for their produce. And, they, you know, again, it's like woofing almost, I don't know if it highlights this, but there is a problem, especially with vegetable production and horticulture. It's this culture of, you know, trying to, 
and it almost produce it at below the cost of production and it's just not it's not sustainable mm-hmm. now we've got a special report from farm hack recorded by regular contributors abby and keisha it's really great to see keisha and abby working together on this neither of them had met before the event and a year ago had not recorded any audio in their lives so it's lovely to see what Farmerama has become, especially since the first UK farm hack was where we had the idea for making a podcast in the first place. Heya, it's Abby Aspen here from Future Farm Lab, reporting from the Scottish Highlands of Farm Hack Scotland. This weekend sees a series of workshops, discussions and debates about the hurdles within our system, from how to acquire land to fixing tools. The word hack, you might think in common parlance nowadays has got negative connotations to it but in actual fact the introduction to us at farm hack talked about where the word comes from and hack originally referred to hackney ponies which were ponies that rather than having specific specialist uses so for racing or plowing etc they were used for a variety of things and that's kind of what us as farmers or smallholders do. We, we do bits and pieces of everything. Um, my name is Laura. Uh, my name is Andrew. Uh, we're here because we've been interested in creating a smallholding or finding a croft for a number of years now. And we just had an offer accepted on an assignation of a croft on the Isle of Lewis. And so we wanted to meet other people who... Um, are involved in doing similar things, hear some other people's ideas and experiences and learn some of the techniques that we'd like to use and in particular some old techniques, the skills that have been lost through a mechanisation of farming. So we learnt uh, how to use a scythe today, which is very uh, interesting and useful. In fact, we're going to buy a scythe. Before we go today. Here. What kind of scythe are you going to buy? The, uh, We're going to buy a Norwegian scythe a Norwegian from this scythe. man here, Charlie, yeah. and uh, and a hand scythe for for the steep hill and the cutting the heather. And we now have a new rake as well. Hmm? Yeah, we you made a, a rake. rake. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we built we built a rake with main woodworking techniques, all hand tools. Splitting fibres. Neil Donaldson. I live in Kintyre, which is on the west coast of Scotland. Um, and we have a, a two-acre walled garden over there, about half a mile from the beach. Um, I was saying earlier on that I think one of the things I really enjoyed was the blacksmithing. Um, I like the idea, which is a kind of, it's a thing that's being lost in rural areas now, is this kind of make, do and mend aspect. Um, it's way the past generations of farmers and rural people used to work, but those people have kind of died out, so it doesn't happen so much. So it's quite nice to see somebody making things from scrap and repairing things which I think in today's life, whether you're in a, even if you're in a city, you know, 
we can't afford to keep on using resources the way we are. So my name is Ruth Hancock and I run a small organic vegetable farm in Devon where I operate vegetable box scheme to market vegetables alongside um, free-range chickens that we tractor in amongst the um, vegetables. I'm involved in um, and we're, we're looking at initially is agroecology agroecological farming a good thing and the conclusion has generally been yes and now we're looking at very practical real world solutions or little tweaks that maybe we could make in the system to make it possible for more of that to happen cool and what have you thought of the workshops and did you know have you learned something new with those or I've learned lots of new things um, I was very uh, excited and inspired by the MATLAB people with their bespoke uh, recreation of maybe old parts for machinery but new applications and one-offs rather than having to buy something where you have a 200,000 run of production you can just have something that fits your system. Hey, I'm Richard Clifford and we've got Alan Rockhead and we're both from MacLab, which is a network of maker spaces across Scotland focused on the empowerment of people through making. But I know nothing about the processes, about the um, science behind it, but hugely fascinated how we can use um, sort of citizen-led making and, and prototyping to change those systems. So I thought when I came in that you guys were predominantly 3D printing, but you're so much more than that. So what, what are the range of things that you, you look at? And we, we don't like to limit ourselves. We pretty much say we can work with any material, any process, or we'll at least give it an attempt at it. So things like the, the smaller scale, like 3D printing, through to textiles, um, up to large sort of scale industrial processes like CNC routing, plasma cutting, even welding and, and traditional uh, sort of traditional skills like that. A lot of the time um, our focus is on uh, the individual and what they want to achieve. Uh, on, in a purely practical sense we are there just to facilitate them making something. Um, so that can be uh, a product designer who wants to create a new product to take to market. Um, but our social purpose is more to look at how we use making as a means of empowering people that can revolutionise and change their own situation, their own life, their own um, sort of skill set. Um, so that can be working with people who perhaps have a disability and, and want to create a device that will change their life, or it can be working with somebody in industry um, and to come up with a new product, a new process that allows them to um, transform the way that things have been done or tackle the way things could maybe be done in the future. Has anyone come up to you with any problems today? Yeah, we've had, uh, we've had some agriculture, we've had some domestic, we've had some um, livestock related, uh, all sorts of different things. Uh, some of the interesting ones, we're um, just about to go into a sort of uh, plenary session to get everyone together. Um, pin those ideas onto a washing line and, and then everyone sort of co-ops the problems and, and shares the problems. So um, we've had people looking at how they might repair devices or, or equipment, how they might change the design of something because it doesn't quite work properly. Um, one in particular being uh, a gentleman who, had, who has a very efficient rake that no modern rake will do the same task, it won't grade the soil in the same way. Um, so we're going to 3D scan that. 
um, to allow us to then work with a digital model uh, and try and understand the difference between what what might his uh, the characteristics of his 70s rake be versus the the modern Chinese model that's not doing the same job. So what did I take away from Farmhack? Well, we all crave community, whether we be living in central London or out in the Scottish Highlands, and that's what Farmhack's all about. Brainstorming, connecting with the lamb, presenting problems and investigating solutions, sharing ideas, learning, inspiration, and, well, fun. Not only was it about work, but we sang, danced, cooked, laughed, swam, yeah, in the icy lock, and had a bloody good time. I think that we often make the mistake of talking about our food and farming system with these big umbrella terms like the meat industry or crop production and actually forget the people and small communities often involved in actually making our food. It was amazing seeing people sharing old school practices, combining them with new ones and evolving. I think we're very quick to condemn older practices as inefficient or pre-modern when sometimes they're actually more modern than our current conventional practices. Some may that see this as an idealistic view, but the more I delve into the spectrum of small-scale to industrial agriculture, I can't believe that economically, socially, environmentally and politically, that industrial farming is the way forward, as all these aspects plus more need to be considered in food and farming. But mostly, what I took away from Farmhack is that farming can be rather solitary, and to entice more people in and support the people already working in the sector, more of these events will be appreciated to promote the feeling you're just not alone. Thank you to Abby and Keisha for that report. We'll no doubt be hearing from both of them in the future and many more of the projects which have come out of Farmhack. We tend not to have themed episodes because we like that each week it's a bit of a mixed bag, but sometimes things just seem to come together. This week, there's been a bit of an unconscious focus on things making use of waste products or mending things, or finding new uses for things such as Patrick's cuffs. Or the soil science squeezed out from your morning cup of tea. Hmm. Or also tinkering away in a field in Scotland. In these stretch times, this is something which is always going to be relevant for farmers, and it's a recurring theme in Farmerama generally. Do you have any ideas for how to make the best of this? We'd love to hear from you, either farmeramaradio at gmail.com or by joining the community on Facebook. Or you can find us on at Farmerama underscore underscore on Twitter. If you like this, you might want to check out the Restart podcasts, which are really excellent exploration of this, though not limited to agriculture. And a second podcast recommendation for you is the Female Farmer Project, who released their first episode last week. We've been fans of their photo project for some time. Thanks very much for joining us this time. We'll be back again next month. We can't wait. See you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.